My Only Story is a Serial, and this is episode 4. Please go back to episode 1. We'll wait for you here. Before we get started, meet my super producer, Alison Pope, without whom none of this would have happened. She reluctantly has to talk about something so horrifying, I can't even bring myself to say it. My name is Alison Pope, and it has been my enormous privilege to be the producer on the My Only Story podcast. When Dion first decided to create a podcast as a way of telling his story and seeking justice, we could not have imagined the overwhelming support that we would receive from the listeners. We are extremely humbled by your reception of the podcast and the number of messages and tip-offs that have been shared with us over the last few weeks. For 11 months and countless hours, we have researched, investigated, planned, written and rewritten to bring together all the information required to give a truthful and honest account of the experiences of so many young boys whose lives were forever changed by a bullfrog. We drew on the expertise of the people that we know from our professional lives and specifically chose to work with small business owners and creative leaders to help us to create a world-class production to get the story heard. While all of these people have participated for free and out of kindness, we recognize that the number of hours that they were working on this podcast were hours where they turned away other paying work. We would sincerely like to do right by them and in some way compensate them for the enormous gift that they have given us. If you have enjoyed this podcast and the level of professionalism in the storytelling, please would you consider donating to our crowdfunding page. We would use these funds to pay for all the third-party costs like music licenses, equipment, studio time and research that has gone into bringing you season one as well as the coffees, sandwiches, and therapy sessions needed to commence work on season two. This may be Dion's only story, but there's still a lot more of it to be told. You can find information on how to donate at myonlystory.org. I'm Dion Wiggett, and this is My Only Story, a podcast and a live investigation. Three months ago, I was in Johannesburg. It was August 2019, and spring had arrived a month too early. It's supposed to be the dead of winter, but on the other side of the windows in my loft, the trees are getting leaves, and weaver birds are weaving their nests. I can see them from my desk, and I spend hours staring at the weaver birds while psyching myself up to phone people I don't want to talk to. And so the days go by as I wheel my office chair to and fro from my desk to a surface, sometimes appalling a cat in the process, while rummaging and plucking out this index card and then that one, as gradually they accumulate again on my desk and other surfaces of the loft. As I search around for an index card from maybe last week, I become annoyed that I didn't put them back in the plastic container that Rian has bought me. If Rian was just an ordinary person, I would have driven him insane by now. He is one of my life's great fortunes. So there I am, three months ago, August, in Johannesburg, in the early climate change spring of 2019. I've been working full-time on the case against Breitenbach since summer. And now it's spring and summer is coming. And soon Breitenbach will be spreading his wares on the beaches of Hattenbos, the Afrikaans' family resort town that Willem would say has it all. Naive high school boys from across the country who don't know a bullfrog when they see one. I mean, why would they? 
nothing in their lives would have prepared them for Willem's cunning. But let me not get ahead of myself. South Africa's beautiful garden route stretches for hundreds of kilometers along National Highway 2, which follows the Indian Ocean coast from Cape Town to Port Elizabeth and beyond. All along the lush garden route, you'll find the whole gambit of holiday destinations, from large towns like George and Mossel Bay, to resort towns like Huttenbosch, to Afrikaner enclaves like Reebok, where Willem has been holed up in his mother's house after fleeing his own home in Three Anchor Bay. For the past two weeks, Willem has been using a very ill woman, his own mother, as a human shield between the media and him. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Rather, we must steer ourselves away from the picturesque garden route on the Indian Ocean to a place not that far away, but far from picturesque. I'm talking about Willowmore, where Willem went after he was fired by Grey College, after the point where he should have left teaching forever, but four years and two schools before he would. Willowmore is the second place I can report that Willem Breitenbach did what Willem Breitenbach does. It is January 1991, and we are in Willowmore. If you were hoping to find a podcast that directs you to Google Earth, boy oh boy, you have come to the right place. I have not been to Willowmore yet. It is far from Johannesburg and also far from Cape Town, where I don't live anyway. So, just like you, I have to rely on Google Earth to show me what's cooking. Type in Willowmore like a willow tree that there is more of in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. It's a little bit hard giving you a landmark to focus on. The large dusty patch, the small highway to the left. What pretty much catches the eye is the main road that diagonally runs through town. It is called Neisner Street, which is the name of a town on the garden route and three hours drive from Willowmore. Most of Willowmore's businesses are on Neisner Street. There's a converted house called Willowmore Cashgalore, a guest house called Kaput, and a coffee shop called Sophie's Choice. According to the website, the proprietor's name is Sophia, and the coffee shop seems eclectic and hearty. Here's what you won't find anywhere in Willowmore. Willowmore High School. Willem Breitenbach taught there in 1991 and 1992, two of the seven missing years, and the high school closed forever in 1995. I honestly don't know if it closed because Willem broke its spirit. After everything I've learned about him, I would say it's definitely possible. When Willem Breitenbach hit the town of Willemore, he moved into the high school's dormitory straight away and started helping himself to the children of the region. They had no way of knowing what the little town was in for. That's what I hear from a guy I'll call Robert. Robert says to me, the sneakiest thing we knew in Willowmore were wildcats and jackals. Robert is in his 40s, and we've been talking on and off for six months. Finally, two weeks ago, the morning that episode two came out, Robert phones me. I am ready, he says. Let me tell you what happened. Finally, after six months, Robert is able to tell me what he saw. Which is this. Willem was living in the high school's dormitory. He used a trick to get Robert alone that night. And then Willem helped himself 
to the young penis of Robert for no other reason than the fact that Willem Breitenbach does what he does. I am not going to permanently rush through the chain of tragedies that Willem unleashed in Willemore. Everything he did there deserves close attention and disinfection in bright light. We will return to the town of Willemore and the circumstances around Willem's hasty departure in 1992. But first, two years more, the last two of the seven missing years, which Willem spent somewhere else. Because three hours away, in somewhat richer Riversdale, a high school and its dormitory were ripe for a plague of bullfrogs. It is January 1993, the start of a new school year. Hundreds of pupils are filing into the school hall for the first assembly of the year. There's an excitement to that first school day after the summer holidays. This year's new intake are looking nervous and shiny. The new seniors are walking around with puffy chests. It's hot in summer in Riversdale, even at 8 a.m. The girls wear light summer dresses and the boys wear little shorts. Everyone is exchanging holiday stories. How was Neisner? It was incredible. How was Hutton Boss? It was okay. At Langenwürfen High in Riversdale, the students settle in. A boy I'll call Ivor is 14 years old, in his second year at Langenwürfen. He's a smart and curious guy. I know him now, we talk a lot. And as the teaching faculty shuffle into their chairs on the stage, Ivor would have been studying the new teachers among them. Actually, knowing Ivor like I do now, he would, without a doubt, have been looking at the new female teachers, desperately hoping one of them is hot. He can't remember specifically, but he doesn't think he paid any attention to a tall new teacher with slight bullfrog features. The principal, Mr. Gerrit Fisser, opens the school year with scripture and prayer. The children sing a patriotic song, as white school children did back then. Then Mr. Fisser welcomes everyone to a new school year and introduces some new teachers. Mr. Breitenbach will teach Afrikaans, he says. He joins us from Willowmore High School. He will also be living in the school's dormitory and he has a passion for school newspapers. If Ivor paid much attention to Mr. Breitenbach that already hot summer's morning, he couldn't have known how well he'd get to know the new teacher. Nothing in his life would have prepared him for Mr. Breitenbach's cunning. By the time the teacher left the school two years later, he had assaulted Ivor many times, including in the house of Willem's own mother, near Haltenbos, where he's holed up today and to where we'll soon return. But how do you just rape a heterosexual 14-year-old boy? The answer is, you don't. First, you groom him. You turn yourself into the boy's hero. You teach the boy to trust you. You teach his parents to trust you. You take the boy somewhere for an educational weekend. The boy is in a strange place and relies on you entirely. And that's when you pounce. When the kid has nowhere to turn. You know that most children will dissociate when you touch them there. And that's precisely what you want. Either you're a survivor and a brother. And so is your classmate Ridge, who was also assaulted multiple times by Breitenbach. 
Both of these men have signed affidavits and laid charges with the police. They are affidavits number three and four. In addition, a further four men from Riversdale confirmed their abuse to me at the hands of Breitenbach. They are at various stages of the healing process when I think of them all as brothers. I strongly believe that these six men represent a fraction of what Breitenbach did wrong in Riversdale. Earlier in my investigation, I had phoned up the school principal, Mr. Fisser, to find out how Breitenbach arrived in Riversdale and also how he left. I heard that Mr. Fisser had moved to the garden route and I luck out. At the first place I phone, they know exactly where I can find him. He answers the phone and he's friendly enough until I tell him why I'm calling. He says to me, Willem Breitenbach is one of the best teachers I've ever seen and I have nothing else to say to you. I say, can I give you my phone number in case you remember anything later? No, he says, I won't remember anything later. And he hangs up. I don't bother Mr. Fisser again. He is retired now. He lives in Hattenbos. Like with the children of Willemo, the story of Riversdale deserves to be told. But once again, I must drag you further along Willem's timeline. Because by 1995, the seven missing years are over and Willem is settling nicely into his new job at Die Burger, the then still powerful Cape Town Daily that made Breitenbach its education reporter. His editor had good reason to be happy with him. The new education reporter really knows his beat, knows his way around schools, knows how to talk to children, and what do you know, he knows how to teach them too. About school newspapers, in particular. Wherever Willem taught, he supervised the school newspaper. Willem liked smart and sensitive boys, and in the 1990s, before the internet, there was no better place to find them than at a school newspaper. At all three schools, Breitenbach used school newspapers as a conveyor belt of targets. But by the time that I met him, Willem had started thinking bigger. Much bigger. As a journalist, Willem toils away to bring back from the dead the National School Newspaper Project. It was his new trick to get high school boys alone by using school newspapers as an industrial-sized supply chain. For years, Willem spent his weekends driving to schools throughout the Western and Eastern Cape to teach children about newspapers. His plan worked for many years because it's a brilliant plan. From his desk in the newsroom of Die Bürger, Willem Breitenbach used Naspers and Die Bürger to spin his web around schoolboys who don't know a bullfrog when they see one. That's how it was for me. Our story moves forward, and now we are in the summer of 1996. I am 16 years old, and it is the day that I meet Willem Breitenbach. I am in Stellenbosch, and in the Cape Winelands, summer has turned to high. If you're quite a sweaty individual, it's an awkward time for you and those who can smell you. Willem, remember, sweats like an inflatable swimming pool freshly installed on a bed of thorns. It is the scorching summer's day that Willem says to me, I'm the education reporter of Die Bürger. And also, a few sentences later, I used to be a teacher though at Gray College, but then I moved down to Cape Town to be the education reporter of Die Bürger. Here is me, and all I've ever wanted 
was to be a journalist. I am the editor of Semper, the school newspaper of the Paul Rus Gymnasium, and so I couldn't believe my luck. Here is this real journalist. He is attentive and smart, and lets me in on newspaper secrets and takes me under his wing. Willem Breitenbach became my hero. I had no way to understand what was happening to me. I was being sexually groomed by Willem Breitenbach. He always, always planned on getting his small and ugly penis in my mouth and getting my teenage penis in his. His plan did not go wrong, not for a second. And he helped himself to all he wanted from me. Not for a second did his plan with me go wrong. Until 22 years later, until three weeks ago, until I laid a trap and in fell Willem Breitenbach. It is Thursday, 7 November 2019, and the working day starts at Lightspeed Digital Media on Pepper Street in central Cape Town. Willem Breitenbach is the co-owner of Lightspeed Digital. The other half of the company belongs to his life partner since the 90s, Danny van Royen, originally from Port Elizabeth. Willem ran Lightspeed Digital Media with an iron fist, insisting on controlling the smallest aspects of employees' waking hours. For instance, someone shows me a WhatsApp group called Lightspeed Team. Here are the rules that are posted. Every morning you switch on your PC and start working, you should post on in this group. And every afternoon, when you have agreed with your team leaders and Willem that your work is done, you must post off. This is regardless if you're in the office or not. If there's any confusion, you can discuss it with Willem. If you are on before 8 a.m., you have passed the first test of the day. If you log on after 8 a.m. and even by a minute, if you're not on a WhatsApp group that time writing on, well then you have failed the first test of the day and you can expect your day to get much worse if you're lucky. But it's particularly bad on the Thursday morning of November 7, 2019. News24 is reporting about a new podcast from a certain Dion Wiggett. It claims that a man called Jimmy had raped him when he was a schoolboy. And even though Willem's name is nowhere close to any story, it sounds to people like maybe it's him, because that's the kind of thing he does. On that Thursday at Lightspeed Digital Media, Willem explodes at the slightest provocation. When he talks loudly, which is often, there is spit that collects in the corners of his mouth. Whenever Willem screams at you, which he always does at some point in the day, the drops of spit land on you and the rest collect in the two corners of his mouth, ready and waiting to spurt at any point that it suits Willem. I ask a source inside Lightspeed Digital what that Thursday was like. Did anyone hear the podcast? At first nobody knew why he was in such a bad mood, says my source. Nobody wanted to be the one who forwards the story. Most of us only heard the podcast after work. As always, Breitenbach's employees spend the day walking on eggshells, not knowing what tiny things will set Willem off all over again. I know something his employees didn't. Willem was in shock. Media24, his former employer, is publishing claims from this Dion Wiggett. He knew I'd been asking around about him, but as far as I can establish, Breitenbach had no warning of the scale of the investigation. On 
that Thursday morning. Breitenbach froze. He was shocked and he was afraid. And like all the boys he pounced on, he could do nothing because he was paralyzed. That's the only way to explain his impotence and his failure to close his LinkedIn account. Under defamation law, I couldn't identify him even indirectly. But loads of people have seven missing years on LinkedIn. It's just that if a podcast made you curious about Willem Breitenbach's LinkedIn page, seven missing years are what you would have found. By midday Thursday, Willem had fallen into a trap. If he removes his LinkedIn page, he looks guilty. If he keeps it, the seven missing years are there for all to see. He does nothing. Nothing but just sit there, impotent, as his LinkedIn traffic spikes. The next morning, Friday, he doesn't go to his office on Pepper Street. He goes straight to his lawyers to see what can be done. One by one, his social media profiles start to disappear. Instagram, gone. Facebook, gone. Twitter, gone. Then finally, Friday afternoon, LinkedIn, gone. Over the weekend, things move rapidly. On Monday morning, almost 30 people arrive for work at a digital marketing agency on Pepper Street. It is their final week under the boss from hell. As the morning stretches on, the atmosphere grows even tenser. One by one, the employees are called into Willem's office. Everyone is told the same thing. The company is struggling. You have to resign. If you know South African labor law, you'll know it doesn't work like that. But you don't know that if you're young and naive and scared, like almost everyone who worked at Lightspeed Digital. Most people did not get retrenchment packages because they weren't retrenched. On his last day at his own company, Willem Breitenbach bullied almost everyone into resigning. It was the last day Breitenbach would ever step foot inside his own company. By Tuesday, News24 was looking for him at Lightspeed Digital and everyone was instructed to clear out the premises. By Wednesday morning, it was like there never was a company in those offices on Pepper Street. I ask a source where my bullfrog has gone. Here's the response. Willem has become unreachable. Our company website has been taken down, and all of our social media platforms as well. It's as if Lightspeed Digital Media never existed. On that same Wednesday, Less than 10 minutes drive away in Three Anchor Bay, a lone and bulky figure gets ready to flee his house. The media know where I live now, the former media luminary says to an ex-employee, I can't have them all come here. So instead, Breitenbach gets in his large white VW Bucky, or pickup truck, and drives four hours or so down the N2 from Cape Town to Rearbrook, and the arms of his extremely ill mother. She is 83, and is recovering from a second operation in a year. Willem Breitenbach knew the media would try to find him at his own house, or his mother's house, or wherever they think that he is. He chose to hide out at his mother's house, and not anywhere else, because she is extremely ill, and because he can use her as a kind and human shield. A bullfrog parks his bucky at the Reebok house of his very ill mother. My name is Rian Grobler. I live in Johannesburg. I'm a journalist with News24. News24 has been my publishing partner 
and the journalists have been on the road looking for Willem Breitenbach. We spend two and a half hours in the plane before it even starts moving. And I kind of start to think that this might be a, a premonition of what's to come. Uh, delays, not being able to find what we're after. I land in George at uh, around seven in the evening. It's still light outside, sun is shining. Completely different from Johannesburg. The team from News24 drives from George Airport to Willem's mother's house. We decide to knock on the door and to see who opens. The street's deserted, the curtains are drawn, there are no sounds, but we try our luck anyway. After a few loud knocks, eventually we hear movement inside the house. We think this is it, we have found him. But the door is instead opened by his mother. Breitenbach's mother is a frail woman wearing a nightgown and supporting herself with a stroller. Quite friendly and uh, with a loud, uh, confident voice. And she says that Willem is not there. I ask her, but when last did you see him? A very long time ago. She can't remember when. I ask her, do you know that Willem closed his business last week? Yes, I know about it. Why do you think he did it? And she says, she doesn't know. I don't meddle in my children's affairs, she says. That's, that's their business. She then proceeds to inform me that uh, she had two operations. Uh, she needs to take a pulse and go to bed, and we should be on our way, which, which we then do. We get a tip that Willem might be staying with friends in Port Elizabeth. So we take the N2 to Port Elizabeth along the garden route, uh, quite a scenic drive past some iconic towns such as Neisner and Plattenberg Bay, arriving in Port Elizabeth about four hours later. We get a bite to eat, just preparing to go and do our stakeout to try and find Willem Breitenbach at an address that we had, when a WhatsApp comes through from the News24 editor-in-chief Adrian Basson saying, sorry guys, we found Breitenbach, you need to turn back and go back to George. So we load our rented Suzuki Swift with our yet unpacked luggage and make our way back again in the opposite direction of the garden route, driving through the same towns, speeding off to Reebok to go and try to find Willem at his mother's house. We arrive at the same house that we've been to, having driven for four hours back to George, receiving a tip that Breitenbach might be at the house. We walk up to the front door, we knock, and to the left of the door, in a dark room, the curtains move slightly and we realize something might be on. The door opens a few moments later and there stands Breitenbach in his full glory, wearing a black t-shirt, uh, rugby shorts, no shoes, no glasses. He cuts quite a large figure. He's much taller than I expected and literally fills the doorway. Willem stretches his hand out through the security gate and shakes both our hands. I say, hello Willem. Rian, he says, and he repeats my name, Rian. This is the point where normally you would hear the person's voice in the background, but not now. I'm not having Willem's voice in my podcast, but you can watch the whole sorry scene at myonlystory.org. Rian, he says, Rian, with, with great humility and with the greatest respect, I cannot talk to you. I then try my luck and ask Breitenbach if I can ask him a few questions, to which he replies, no, not at all. I then ask him if I can present him with a set of written questions that I had prepared, a total of 23 in fact, asking him all sorts of questions about his alleged activities, to which he again replies, no, not at all. 
At that point, he retires into the hallway uh, and prepares to close the door. He wishes us again a very good evening. He ends his, our conversation with, I respect you, please respect me, but at this point, I cannot talk to you any longer. He closes the door and off we go. It is a beautiful early summer's afternoon, Friday, 15 November 2019, and the coastal resorts of Reebok and Great Brock River and Hudson Boss are getting primed for summer. But something much darker must have been on Willem Breitenbach's mind. Fuming to the end, he gets in his large white bucky with a prescription full of sleeping pills and a squeezy bottle full of booze. He drives to the beach just down the road from his ill mother's house. He parks. He crushes the sleeping pills and swallows them all with great big gulps of alcohol. He knows his problems are not going away. He knows he's raped too many men, destroyed too many boys. And all of us are coming for him. Melodramatically, he tries to wade out into the water like Virginia Woolf or Ignat Juncker. But by luck or by design, he never gets that far. The crushed sleeping pills distribute rapidly through his body. The alcohol slows down his reflexes. And before he can drag himself into the ocean, the life starts to leave his body as Willem collapses into the sand. I shouldn't get surprised, but still I do. Willem Breitenbach was always a coward, and in the end he decided to go out like one. He knew that I knew too much, and he knew the beaches and boys of Hattenbos will never lie under his giant body again. What kind of life would that be for a bullfrog? If he can't raise boys, Willem Breitenbach decided, he doesn't want to live at all. Wait a moment, you might say. He's come all of this way to mother. That must show at least he loves her and wants to be there for her in her hour of need. But that isn't something I buy. See if you agree. Rightfully or wrongfully, somebody accuses you of heinous crimes. Of course you deny everything, because who wouldn't deny raping children? Of course you flee your house, where the media know where to find you. But then, do you go to the house of your own mother? Your own very ill mother? And wait until the journalists you know descend upon her house? Because of course they would know you've gone to Rearbook, would know you've gone to your mother, as you've always done the very moment that accountability hangs in the air. The last time I was in Cape Town was 10 days ago. I've come here for a bunch of reasons, and the most important of them all is meeting Jake. Jake is a creative Cape Town type, and he's unrealistically beautiful, smart and sweet, with a certain look. He used to work for Willem until things got out of hand. I ask, how many times did Willem help himself to your penis? Jake says, not that many times. Six times, at the most. Jake was raped at least six times while employed by Willem Breitenbach in 2017 and 2018. Jake had just turned 20. He has made an affidavit and laid charges with the police and is one of the most recent men recalling a night where Willem Breitenbach did what he does. 
Jake is my brother, and he's after David number five, and I've never been prouder of someone. Jake, dude, big up. It isn't often that there is justice in the world, but there was a tiny bit at a beach just minutes from the house of Willem's ailing and kind-hearted mother. The paramedics find Breitenbach on the beach next to his vehicle, unconscious. They start to administer first aid. He's out cold and they need to try to revive him. So in order to do this, they phone his mother to find out what medication he was taking. Uh, when last the prescription had been filled, this helps them to determine how many tablets he may have taken. Uh, uh, all of this in an attempt to administer the right kind of treatment to, uh, to bring him by, which they managed to do. A very confused Breitenbach is admitted to a hospital in Mossel Bay that same evening. As much as we all dislike Willem Breitenbach, this is the point of our story where we somewhat leave him behind. This morning, 28 November 2019, he's still holed up there with his frail and exhausted human shield. Willem Breitenbach doesn't care. He's fine with anything that doesn't lay any responsibility at his feet. If you ask Willem Breitenbach, nothing has ever been his fault, least of all these allegations of teenage boys allegedly raped by him. These allegations are not his fault, Willem Breitenbach will tell you. Here's what I can tell you. Wherever Willem Breitenbach goes, the media will follow at this point of the scandal. He was a media executive. He knows the media will come for him. If he's at his house in Three Anchor Bay, that's where they will go. If he stays with his friends in Port Elizabeth, that's where they will go. But he has chosen to make them come to his mother's house. Because everybody knows that is where he is. As a kind woman withers, her son Willem will continue to make demands, just like he always has. There is a knock at the door, and it is a television crew looking for Willem Breitenbach. If you are Willem Breitenbach, you drag your desperately ill mother out of bed. You make her put on her dressing gown. While you hide in her room, she walks to the front door with her walking frame. She opens the door. There is a journalist, and he has a microphone. And like Willem knew the journalist would, a microphone gets shoved in the face of a lady in her 80s. The journalist says, I'm sorry, but we're looking for Willem. His mother says, I don't know where Willem is. But he's in the room just behind her. And everybody knows that he's there. If Willem successfully commits suicide, it would be a great pity. But only to a degree. I want Willem to pay for his deeds. But it's not as if he can. There is no way he could adequately pay, no way that a human body could atone for what he's done. If he does commit suicide, it would be entirely consistent with his character. I hope he doesn't, though. But whether he survives or not, Willem isn't particularly interesting. What is particularly interesting are the reasons why he has survived until now. Willem Breitenbach would always do that thing he does because it's easy when you have no empathy or conscience. But that's not an excuse available to those around him. Any Jimmy will do what any Jimmy does, but they only get to do it because they face no consequences. 
good people, honourable people, sometimes decide to let something slide, to let a teacher get away. And the consequences of that decision reverberate through decades and generations. This year, 2019, has been quite the year for me. But until the other day, I wasn't terribly exceptional to Willem Breitenbach. Over the years, now and again he'd be caught with his hand on a teenage cock. But avoiding a scandal matters more than saving children. So every time Willem got caught doing what he does, and boy oh boy, has he been caught. But every single time, he was allowed a hushed departure. Before he fled Lightspeed Digital, Willem Breitenbach fled Lumico, the company he started with his former employee, Daniel Malalbe, a good-looking guy who once hiked with Willem along Table Mountain. Before that, Willem left Media24 and Huisgenoot and U Magazine under circumstances that remain unclear. Even before then, Willem was hastily moved in 2004 from Naspers in Cape Town to Naspers in New Delhi in India. I have terrible and predictable news about what Willem did in his three years in India. Exactly what men like him do. There are all these departures, and plenty more too. Why did Breitenbach leave the National School Newspaper Project? Why did he leave Langenwürfen High in Riversdale? Why did he leave Willemore? If you look toward the first quarter century of Willem's regrettable life, you'll find your fair share of departures too from schools and dormitories and universities where Willem did what he does and got caught and was released. Willem Breitenbach has no conscience, but his enablers do. If it ever comes to that split-second decision moment, I respectfully pray that one of those enablers won't be you. Willem Breitenbach departed many places, but as far as I've been able to tell, there was one year where his trajectory may have been stopped. It is 1990. It is Willem Breitenbach's second year at Grey College. Far away from Bloemfontein, I am 10 years old, and there's no way I could know that a series of decisions at faraway Grey College meant that Willem lived another day that would lead him to help himself to me too. Willem Breitenbach left Grey College suddenly one evening in 1990. After helping himself to many boys there, the exact figure is a topic for another day. But after helping himself to all those grey boys, Willem would find his way to teenagers from Willowmore to Stellenbosch. Me, too. I'm at the back of Table Mountain, on the side where Table Mountain doesn't look flat at all, but like two dramatic mountain peaks that surely can never look like a table. I'm in a noisy public park, and I'm here to meet one of Breitenbach's pupils from Grey College. My name is Anton Fisser, I'm 46, I live in Cape Town and I shoot commercials, I'm a commercial director. It is 10 o'clock Thursday and unpleasantly gusty, but Cape Town's dog owners are made of stern stuff. Anton and I find a park bench that's out of the wind, but it's also next to a pathway that's a paradise for walkies in these parts. Thank you for your perspective on the local squirrels. It's very articulate, thank you. <laughs> the parade of dogs turn out to be a welcome distraction from the heavy things Anton and I are here to discuss. I'm a peripheral character in all of this, and it's interesting, you know, because nothing happened to me. But 
you want me to paint a picture of the time and I can see it all playing out now in retrospect. As boys, were you told, oh, you know, Mr. Breitenbach has left the school and no correspondence will be entered into? I mean, or was it kind of organically at the end of the year? Not even that. And maybe there's a, a clue in that. You know, it wasn't announced. It just kind of filtered through, oh, did you hear? He's gone. You know, he's going somewhere else. It wasn't timed. There's a clue in that. It was never announced. It was never explained to anybody. It was just one week. And that was it. It was definitely very low-key the way that he was let go. It is yesterday, 27 November 2019, and I am in Johannesburg, in my loft, in the home I share with my husband and four cats. I'm sitting at my desk, and I'm surveying the remains of the loft. When I started this investigation 11 months ago, something strange started to happen. Soon after I started asking around about Breitenbach, I was receiving answers to a different question. For instance, in my loft one evening, I get a call from a boy from Grey College. A few days ago, I sent him a sensitive message, and he is eager to tell me what he saw. I tell him I'm investigating a certain Mr. Breitenbach. Oh, he says, after a long silence. I didn't realize it was Mr. Breitenbach that you wanted to know about. I say, who did you think I was talking about? He says, well, can I trust you? I say, yes, and he says, okay. And he tells me about someone else entirely. Some other person who helped themselves to him, who once left a school under a cloud and then popped back up at another exclusive school where he still teaches today. I put the phone down. This other teacher seems like a person worth probing. I find a fresh index card and I write down a name that means nothing to me, but now it sounds like maybe he could be like Jimmy. It happens over and over. I ask questions and people say, no, no, I wasn't raped by Willem Breitenbach. And then they tell me by whom. After 11 months, I have a binder full of information I will share with the police. But I will also try to think if there's a different way of catching these bullfrogs who hide among us. I think maybe I have caught my Jimmy. If you have your own Jimmy, maybe someone should catch him too. Well, I say I have a binder full of pedophiles. What I have are too many index cards of pedophiles who teach at schools and often live there too. What these index cards need is a binder. I will get a professional-looking binder, like a real detective. I will file all of my index cards, and as I page through my shiny binder, suddenly I would notice a pattern. A pattern that would, as they say in detective shows, blow this case wide open. It is Sunday, 17 November 2019, and I land in Cape Town. I am here to meet two more survivors of Willem and to lay charges against Willem for offences in 1997. Under South African law, sexual offences never prescribe, which means you can lay historical charges when you are good and ready, not when other people think you should be. It is early evening as I touch down in the mother city. The three weeks since episode one came out have been the most intense of my life, and certainly the most meaningful too. Ever since I acknowledged my abuse, 
I have been consciously hung up with Willem Breitenbach and the sexual grooming and raping he does in plain sight. An evil teacher who became an untouchable publisher. There was nothing secret or subtle about the way that Breitenbach ruled the roost in the 26-story Media 24 building on Cape Town's foreshore. He was the general manager of Huisgenoot and New Magazines, red-top weekly tabloids that are ferocious in their pursuit of rugby players' most minor indiscretions. But these magazines did nothing to report on the monster in their midst. From the beginning, from my very first conversation around this podcast, people have asked me why. Why do it like this? Why not just go to the police? My explanation has been the same every time. I have three aims in descending order of importance. Justice, activism, and art. Justice, so that Willem Breitenbach can be kept far away from any children or young men or sane members of society. An organization like a jail comes to mind. My second purpose has been activism, because I wanted to expose not only Willem Breitenbach, but the layers of complicity that's enabled his decades-long reign. And my third purpose has been art. I can never get back what Willem Breitenbach took from me, but that doesn't mean I can't make something beautiful out of it. That is what this podcast has been to me. I've taken everything that's happened to me and turned it into a flower. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I am proud of myself. I am proud of what I have done here, which is an admission that would delight my therapist, Craig Traub, so much he's bound to bring it up every time he sees me, which is twice a week. If you're a survivor of sexual abuse, therapy will make you stronger and help you to heal. I would never have been able to do any of this without the support and kindness of Craig. If there's something in your past you don't want to talk about, I strongly recommend that you get your own Craig and talk about it. Only by learning to grieve what we've lost can we learn how to move on. In the past three weeks, I've realized something else, and it's made me uncomfortable. Don't worry, Craig and I have been talking through it, and I'm okay with it now, I think. I've had a fourth motive that I didn't admit to myself. The fourth motive was revenge. Tailor-made revenge. Willem Breitenbach has never been liked in his life, but he has often been respected and has always been feared. At school newspapers and real newspapers and at websites and social pages, Willem always preached the powers of new media. At school newspaper courses, he taught me to keep finding new ways of telling stories, all the while teaching me something much easier. How to teach a boy how to hate himself. Willem Breitenbach's whole life is a tale of humiliation and destruction. Willem has no empathy, so he can't understand how anybody else feels. He can only understand what he feels. That's why Willem Breitenbach had to get a taste of his own medicine. Today, hiding behind his expiring mother, Willem Breitenbach cannot believe that three weeks and one day ago, he owned a company and employed 30 in Cape Town. He lived with his life partner, Dani, in a picture-pretty Cape Town neighborhood called Three Anchor Bay, in a house tucked in among Table Mountain and the Atlantic Ocean. As always, he was scheming and plotting and raping boys and young men. It was nice. He was happy. 
even though he seldom looked it. All of that was just three weeks and one day ago. Now everything is destroyed and Willem is humiliated. Willem, I know you've had to listen to every episode, would have had to listen and re-listen to everything I've said about you. Willem, here is the second and the last thing I'll ever say to you. You're welcome. So there I am, two Sundays ago. I am walking through Cape Town International Airport, down the long passage between the luggage carousels and the sliding doors between passengers and the landside public. I feel a strange emotion. I feel soothed and safe. I walk out of the main terminal building towards the rental car companies, but I look up and I stop. In front of me is Table Mountain, just like it has always been. But for the first time I can remember, the sight of the mountain doesn't scare me. In fact, it's beautiful. Willem isn't in Cape Town, and I know why I've always been afraid when I arrive here. Two Sundays ago, I realized at Cape Town Airport that I have found some peace. Willem isn't destroying boys in Cape Town anymore, the ground zero of his criminal empire. Not anymore. I wanted to warn people's sons, and I have. And I was still scared of Willem Breitenbach, even though I'm way too old for him now. I turn 40 next month, a brand new Dion for the 2020s. None of the boys and the men he destroyed can ever regain the boys that they were. But it brings me peace to know where he is, to know where he's hiding and spending his days just waiting for a knock at the door. He won't be bothering us anymore, and I find peace in that. If Willem bothered you, I hope it can bring some peace to you too. Under defamation law, all subjects get the right to reply. Willem hasn't denied anything, and you can read all about his and other parties' responses at news24.com. It took an army of people to tell my only story, and there's no way I can adequately thank them for helping me. This year has been hard on the people who love me, and because I've had no money to pay anyone, I could only ask people who love me to help me with this. But the emotional toll on them all has been phenomenal. I've had the time to process things, to write and rewrite exactly what I want to say, and I still have to talk to Craig about it twice a week. By the time it's an episode and I walk into the sound booth to do the recording, it's become an entirely creative pursuit for me. But I've underestimated the impact it would have. The episodes are written in three acts, so normally I take a break in the voicing between act one and two. I bounce out of studio all excited, and I find producer Alison Pope and sound engineer Sean Jeffress looking thoroughly gloomy. What's wrong, I'd say, is the read bad? Don't you like the act climax? And Sean would say, dude, it's really heavy stuff. It's working, just give us a moment. Then I'd say, Act 2 is much lighter than Act 1, but they never look like they believe me. The story has also had a big impact on composer Charles-Johan Lingenfelder. The scoring has had to match the episode's clips and breaks and climaxes, so Charles-Johan can't do a thing before everything else is done. For Episode 4, he has had less than 24 hours to process the episode emotionally, 
and then compose all the music instantly to something that sits so tightly between the words that he can't imagine the two ever existed apart from each other. I want to say bye, Donkey Leafy. Thank you, Rian Volmrans, my husband, who has helped me with myonlystory.org, as well as Facebook and Twitter, while still working full-time at a media organization that's a rival to News24. Rian loves me, and the content has been hard for him to listen to, but he has supported me through all of it. And so is the love of my mother, my sister, my aunt, and my whole family. People ask how my family has taken my crusade, and then I tell them the story of my aunt. About a year ago, we sit on my stoop in Johannesburg. I am telling her about my rape, and I say, the perpetrator is still alive and active in Cape Town. My aunt says immediately, but you must expose him. That is the plan, I say to her. The combined love of my family, my husband, my friends, and my creative contributors have made it all possible. My script editor is an Alpitasa, who won't allow me at this point to add a further sentence to this immensely long list. If this was an awards ceremony, the orchestra would be deafening by now. But please allow me a few quick more. Our incredible artwork is by Carla Kriese. Our publishing partner was News24. And thank you to Adrian Basson, our editorial advisor, and to Peter de Toy. Our lawyering is by Willem de Klerk and Charles de Plessis. And thank you to News24 for paying for them. My publicist is Jenny Griesel. Also special thanks to Sheldon Zelesnik, Anneke Verlet, Latif Trump, Henny van Dievende, Chris Viskiedel and Theresa Nightingale, and to Nina, who was our emotional support puppy. You can now sign up for our newsletter at myonlystory.org. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and find us on Facebook or Twitter. This has been a production of Fairly Famous.